welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to welcome to this podcast Dr. Thomas Starzl. Dr. Starzl is recognized around the world for his pioneering effort in organ transplantation, and it's through his efforts and his colleagues that organ transplantation has become a clinical reality. Dr. Starzl, welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. Well, thank you. I'm delighted. So, Dr. Starzl, I know from some of the things you've shared with me that you talk about the transformation of an idea into reality and the five separate interconnected themes that took to realize that. I might ask you in a moment just to briefly summarize those particular steps, but I think it's also noteworthy to comment to our listeners that you started these studies in terms of your interest in organ transplantation back as early as 1952, I believe, when you started to study surgery at John Hopkins University. So it's been a long road, a very successful road, but perhaps just very briefly you could introduce the five themes that were necessary to accomplish what you've been able to accomplish. The first theme actually was only a first cousin to transplantation, and interestingly enough, it involved liver regeneration. So it started out exactly where you guys are right now, that is, uh, with regeneration, except that even as long ago as the late 1950s, which is when my first events occurred, it was really very well known that you could remove up to 90% of an animal's or a human's liver and have it successfully regenerate. So the liver actually provided a perfect platform, not only for transplantation, but for studies of regeneration. Those first studies that I did, which were on a experimental procedure known as ex fistula, but also known to surgeons who use the same operation as portocaval shunt, the blood supply of the liver is altered in a way that directs insulin and other factors that are in the intestinal venous return around the liver instead of having to have a primary passage through the liver capillary bed. So I was investigating what the portal venous blood had, what the goodies were, what the ingredients were in portal blood that made it different than any other kind of blood. And I should add that at the time there had been a controversy going on for about 100 years whether or not the portal blood actually did have any special ingredients. But the long and short of it is that I found evidence right from the beginning that the liver contained growth factors or regeneration factors. And in fact, the most important of these was insulin, which was secreted by the pancreas into the main vein that feeds the liver and then runs through the liver. And ultimately, that discovery became the basis of a field in physiology known as hepatotrophic physiology. So um, the first theme was hepatotrophic physiology, and that, as I've emphasized, involved both immunology and regenerative medicine. Now, in follow-up of trying to discover or delineate more completely what those hepatotrophic factors were in the portal venous blood, I devised uh, experimental models of one kind or another in which the uh, liver was either transplanted after removal of the uh, recipient's own liver or transplantation to some other place, leaving the animal's liver in place. And uh, the liver replacement operation, uh, one of those two possibilities, 
turn out to be almost exactly the operation that's used today for treatment of a whole variety of liver diseases. It was a difficult operation. In fact, uh, the whole concept of replacing the liver had never been described in the literature, never been mentioned before. Uh, so the possibility of transplanting the liver was really considered to be a fantasy at the time. But within a relatively short time, about a year, maybe 18 months of a very intensive effort, the operation was perfected, but of course the big problem at that time is that there was no known means of preventing rejection. So now the two first themes had been entered, first hepatotrophic physiology, then the development of the liver transplant operations, and then the third theme, and a very critical one of course, was the immunology that was involved, specifically how did you turn off the immunology that was involved. Some clues about how this might be accomplished were uncovered in the early liver transplant operations when we found that occasionally a rejection of the transplanted liver in dogs, once begun, did not go on to a completion. And this was a really a very big surprise. Those were the first examples ever in any species in which rejection, which had been thought to be inexorable, was self-limiting, it turned itself off, allowing a recovery. But this was rare, but it did occur. And then the next step was when we made key observations in dogs, both with livers and then with kidney transplant recipients. And that was that this reversal that we had rarely seen uh, spontaneously could be induced almost in 100% of cases with high doses of prednisone if they were added to a chemical immunosuppressant, also being new on the scene, called Imuran or azathioprine. So we put together a combination therapy using Imuran and then adding prednisone when rejection occurred, found that in large human series of kidney transplants that you could get through this critical early period of high risk and that later uh, many of the patients were able to reduce their immunosuppression and as it turned out in some, stop it altogether. And in that vanguard then of early kidney transplant recipients, uh, which we compiled in 1962 and 1963, there are about uh, seven or eight still going, approaching their 50th year. And most of those patients at some time came off their drugs. In one case, after only one year, in others, as long as five or 10 years afterwards. And those patients have then been drug-free. So we realized at the beginning that at least in some cases it was possible to induce immunologic tolerance. But we didn't know why. And in addition, it was difficult to achieve this with the drugs that were available in 1960 or at any time until relatively recently. So as a result of that, a continuous fairly heavy immunosuppression was necessary uh, for almost 30 years, beginning in 1962, which the cases that I've described represented the first series in the world of successful kidney transplantation or transplantation of any kind. So um, over the next 30 years, we were forced to start out and give heavy immunosuppression in large part because we really didn't understand what was going on.
And then during those 30 years, other organs began to be transplanted. The liver, of course, which was where I started, was first successfully done in Denver in 1967. And then for the next dozen or so years, we accumulated about uh, 170 cases altogether. There were no other programs in the United States, but uh, I was joined by some groups in Europe, specifically in uh, England, one group at Cambridge, group in Paris, uh, another one in Germany, and one in Holland. All of these uh, groups had come to Denver and learned how to do the procedure, and we're now back home working on their own. The results were really too poor to offer liver transplantation as a service until the drug called cyclosporin came on board in 1979. And then in that year, or in the year following, I came out here to Pittsburgh and established the liver program, and we were off to the races. So um, the 1980s was what people have called the golden period of transplantation in which suddenly not only the kidney, which by this time had been around for 30 years, but all the other organs, the uh, liver, intestine, lung, heart, and pancreas, all began to be done in larger numbers, still with results that we didn't think were good enough. So uh, beginning in 1986 or late 1985, we began from test tube to the clinic the development of a drug that had a number, FK506, subsequently called tacrolimus, which was better than uh, cyclosporin, and that put procedures over the top that really had been pretty unsatisfactory up to that time, and that included the intestine. By the early 1990s, transplantation had become a gigantic enterprise being used all over the world. And interestingly enough, an enormous percentage of the people starting up new programs at one time or other had been in Pittsburgh and had been trained here. Maybe that would define theme four, which is the quantitation of outcomes, the survival curves, the graft and the patient survival curves. Those became important measurements of progress, and also they required the development of sophisticated systems that not only measured survival, but the quality of life. And I've called that theme four, but now jumping back to theme three, the immunology, we still were up a tree in that we did not exactly understand what was being done or even have a very good general idea. In 1992, I brought back a group of patients to Pittsburgh who were the longest surviving kidney and liver recipients in the world and did a number of tests on them to try to figure out why they had survived for such a long time, more than 30 years for the kidneys and the livers by that time were out a quarter of a century, quite a few of them having discontinued all drug therapy. So um, we took bits of tissue and blood samples from these patients, and we found that they had distributed throughout their bodies small numbers of donor white cells, donor leukocytes. And so they had a condition that we call donor leukocyte microchimerism, in which what had happened in these patients was uh, comparable to infestation with a non-cytopathic microorganism. 
in this circumstance, the analog of a non-cytopathic microorganism was the leukocyte or leukocytes that make up part of the composition of organ grafts that had all left the graft and had found homes throughout the recipient body. So this is like a dual immune system? Well, it created a double immune system because these cells were immune competent. And so they were capable, uh, in some cases, if they got out of hand, of rejecting the host. Uh, when that happened, I was a deadly complication called graft-versus-host disease. Rare or uncommon, but I had seen it on a number of occasions. This represented the bad side, <laughs> the downside of the uh, double immune reaction in which the weak reaction, the graft-versus-host reaction, had become the dominant one. This proved not to be a terribly difficult problem, but it was important to understand it because if the treatment were carried out in certain ways, the risk of graft-versus-host disease was increased. But at the same time, the presence of these cells is is an absolute necessity for long-term survival of the graft because the donor cells move around even after they're embedded in the recipient and they keep traveling, migrating back to the host lymphoid organs, you know, the spleen and the lymph nodes, and keep tickling the immune system and maintain the tolerant state, which is a state called clonal exhaustion deletion. So um, getting into the details of that, I think, is more than we want to do. But suffice it to say, this was a huge discovery because it explained how the immune system was governed. And it also had some therapeutic implications. Namely, it told us that the key to effective immunosuppression was the timing and dosage of the drugs that you give to prevent rejection in relation to the timing and dose of the arrival of the graft and uh, the arrival of all these cells that come along with the graft and migrate. So the therapeutic implications included the development of therapeutic principles that made it possible for graft acceptance to occur in the long run with much less dependence on immunosuppression than had been possible before. So um, these principles have been applied here since 2001 and have really reduced very much the morbidity of chronic immunosuppression. As I understand how you clinically implement this now, you basically take some of the donor's bone marrow and inject it into the recipient? Well, uh, yeah, that's one element of it. The principles are, however, recipient pretreatment, principle number one. That consists of weakening the recipient's immune potential capability by some kind of pretreatment, uh, the pretreatment principle. And you can do the pretreatment in a variety of ways, but the most efficient way is with anti-lymphocyte globulin. And fortunately, a highly superior anti-lymphocyte globulin was developed and introduced in the early 1990s called alemtuzumab or Campath. And if you give a dose of Campath prior to arrival of the graft, then the immune system is weakened. That reduces the amount of chronic immunosuppression that you have to give afterwards and allows the basic mechanism of engraftment, which is clonal exhaustion deletion. So principle number one is recipient pretreatment, and then the second principle is to deliberately use as little immunosuppression as you can. Now, added to that is what you just described, and that is the infusion of 
donor cells, donor leukocytes. So if you have access to the donor cells via, let's say, the bone marrow in a deceased donor or by leukophoresis in a potential living donor, then you can time the infusion of those cells in exactly the right way so that it increases the chance of getting the patients on low doses. And, of course, as you know, this full armamentarium has been used in what's been called the Pittsburgh paradigm to carry out these limb transplants that have been done here beginning about a year and a half ago. That's correct. Dr. Lee actually joined us for an earlier podcast to talk about that. Right. So this has been a fascinating synopsis. Of, you've, you've focused in detail on your the four of your five themes. Well, the fifth theme is what I call the humanism aspects of it. And here we're talking about all the ethical and other aspects that were introduced into medicine by the success of transplantation. In a single professional lifetime, 50 years in my case, we've gone from thinking about transplantation as a pie in the sky to something that exists in practically every first-class tertiary care medical facility in the world, and with a limitation imposed only by a lack of organs. So uh, this means, in order to take real root, it has to support itself, it has to be commercially viable, and all the problems that go with the commercialization of anything come right to the surface. Because the coin of the marketplace, if you want to put it that way, is the organ supply. We have these bitter disputes going on about how these resources should be used, who has access to them, how they're divvied up amongst the different centers. And then the stories, I don't think most of them are true, about brokering of organs, the use of victim donors in third world countries and all that sort of stuff. The first four themes were developed in a relatively orderly way. The fifth theme, the basic ethics and their application in transplantation, theme five is nowhere closer to being resolved now than it was 50 years ago. So interestingly enough, you speak of the shortage of organs. Did you have some approximate estimate of how many liver transplants are done a year around the world now? I think in the United States there are between five and 10,000. Uh, it may be in the range of a third, maybe almost a half as many as kidney transplants. And around the world, I don't really know, but certainly more cumulatively than in the United States. Of course, the kidney is the most commonly transplanted organ. It's the simplest of the transplants, but the liver is, by all odds, the second most commonly transplanted organ. So let's perhaps use this as a segue to think a little bit about the concepts of regeneration versus transplantation. I believe I understand that you pointed out the liver has some regenerative characteristics in and of itself. And with this shortage of, of organs, what do you see in terms of therapies that might regenerate the liver as opposed to having to transplant it? Well, I know there's some very interesting work being done over at your place on that score. The efforts are being made to develop artificial livers to support people, for example, with fulminant hepatic failure, who, if you can buy the time, are capable of regenerating their own livers. The other thing that's important to realize is that with our discovery, which had been completely unexpected 
until we actually made it, that there are donor leukocytes hanging around all over the body of organ recipients. The fact is that when you transplant an organ, that in a sense it's the same as a stem cell transplantation. Uh, pluripotent multilineage stem cells are found in all organs, and these lymphopoietic cells are part of the population that leaves the liver and traffics around and, and finds nests throughout the body. So um, transplantation is, in fact, a form of stem cell transplantation. And I think there's quite a bit of evidence that the cells that have differentiated and are uh, relatively mature can de-differentiate. So where that's all going, I don't know, but clearly there is a connection whenever you dare to say, and I think it's a certainty, that successful transplantation is in fact a form of successful stem cell transplantation. You've got a pretty strong starting point in making the nexus between transplantation and regenerative medicine. Yeah, I've heard others suggest that as well, and uh, it looks like maybe these two scientific and clinical practices might just uh, merge together at some point. Yeah, I think they're already merged in many levels, but it seems to me critically important to try to work together. Of course, the immunology of regenerative medicine is really the same if you're going to succeed with gene therapy or with stem cell therapy, you still have to take into account the immune system, which recognizes as different whatever modifications you try to impose on the recipient of either kind of therapy. Sounds like some challenges and opportunities for the future, doesn't it? Oh, I think certainly so. And there's a large group of people who have the frame of mind that's really necessary to exploit basic breakthroughs because sometimes basic breakthroughs just lie there unless someone is really pushing to see that's translated into therapeutic ventures of one kind or another. Agreed. So Dr. Stargio, we appreciate you joining us by telephone today to share this story of incredible accomplishment that has aided many, many people around the world. And we look forward to uh, learning some more accomplishments of you and your colleagues as you refine and develop these therapies even in more detail. As we conclude this podcast, I'd like to uh, remind our listeners that we welcome suggestions in terms of topics to be addressed. You can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine that sponsors this podcast series. Until we meet again in two weeks, Best wishes to all our listeners. Thank you.